I'm Will Hedrick. And I'm Jordan Schaffer. And this is Dog Ears and Timestamps, a book club podcast. We're bringing reading back. <laughs> bringing it back. That's our tagline. We're going to bring the reading back, back to the kiddos. <laughs> Speaking of uh, that, though, how, how was your reading, Will? Like, what would, where did you read? How did you read? How was the book? I put it off. I could do everything in my life. <laughs> and then uh, Friday night, or no, I'm sorry, not Friday night, Saturday night, this past Saturday, two days ago, Saturday, I uh, decided I was going to read before I went to sleep. So I just laid in bed and read the three chapters. Yeah, I have issues laying in bed reading just because if I'm horizontal, I just go to sleep. <laughs> so True, yeah. Um, yeah, I'd been... Uh, taking the book in a little differently we had been talking about this a little bit before just how like ingesting the media through audio like and how my focus was split even though I was doing a a task like stocking the shelves at work like it is relatively mindless but I still needed to pay attention a little bit to what I was doing so and then focus on the book so I ended up listening to the book several times uh over just the little sections that we were into and uh I was just realizing how much I, I rely on the entire audiobook as like a piece of work mm-hmm. to put the story together rather than how this time we're, we're going deep into each chapter and we're like analyzing it differently. It's made me uh, reappreciate things, you know? Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, you haven't literally read a book in a while, right? Because you've just oh, been, yeah, no. you've been hard on that audiobook train for years now. Yeah, you're right. I literally have not physically Where read a book. You can, you can listen very passively. Mm-hmm. Which is something that I do as well. I listen to a shit ton of podcasts constantly. Me too. And so it's really easy. And then I also even, I listen to them at 2.3 times speed. So (laughs) it's even less, I miss more details than normal because it's like, you know, I can context clues put together the fact Mm -hmm. that they use like some connecting words like the or whatever. Yeah. I don't literally hear it though. Um, Whereas when you're reading, it's, that's the only thing that you're doing at Mm -hmm. the time. So it's much more active and you're catching way more that way. But yeah, it's a, it's naturally more intimate probably just to be reading the words and like that's the only thing you can do. You can't really multitask while you're reading. At least I can't. I can't enjoy a good song or do anything literally else. Like I, I saw people like in school, they used to walk and read. That's insanity. Yeah. Those were weird kids. Yeah, but they were always <laughs> they were always reading like Robert Jordan, like nine hundred page fantasy novels or like hardcore ultra bloody gory sci-fi stuff like it was yeah that's some level of multitasking or not caring yeah that you're gonna run into a door yeah that i think is kind of admirable almost because <laughs> i can't multitask like that i can multitask doing a lot of different things but if i'm trying to ingest some sort of media yeah i'm almost always 100 percent devoted to it yeah like, i hate cool. going to theaters because people talk uh i hate watching most things with people because people talk yeah if I'm listening to podcasts while I'm working, it's okay because work is mindless. Yeah. So it's not distracting me. But if I'm playing video games while I'm listening to podcasts, I'll often have to rewind. So like somebody that's walking and reading, like that's just super dangerous. I feel like I would be completely engrossed and I would get hit by a car. Yeah. Easy. I mean, I always saw them walking in school, so it wasn't anything crazy. It was just they were so used <coughs> to the the mindless herd of the of the you know. Yeah, but I would fall down the, the stairs sheep? at school. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I guess. would fall down that huge flight of stairs at the you know in front of the cafeteria. There's no way. I saw someone oh, yeah, do that one time. Stairs. It was fucking hilarious. I was walking to the cafeteria for some reason with Felix, and then all of a sudden we just hear, 
Oh no! And these books and papers just exploded at the bottom of the stairs because we were like coming up on the stairs. And then there was just some girl who maybe was dead. I don't know. Oh no! She was probably funny. Yeah, I just left her. Said, "I'm not getting involved with this." Yeah, but that would be me if I was reading and walking in high school. That that would be. I wouldn't have saved the girl in freaking chapter one, like Richard, right? Yeah, he, uh, obviously there was something going on that made it a little different because he's kind of a weenie, but I don't know. Would, uh, do you like this book? Did you relate to Richard, you think? or do you? I like it you... so far. Mm-hmm. Um, there was one theme that was relatively relatable whenever he's leaving home to go to uh, this crazy old city. Mm-hmm. There's actually a line, a line that I didn't take down in the notes, but I'm gonna I'm gonna find it right quick. I felt like I related to him a lot. Like he kind of backed down a lot um, and just was more ready to let somebody else kind of guide him. <laughs> and I feel like I yeah. do that too often. He's absolutely like not like fully directionless. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he went and got himself a job in London yeah, yeah, and uh, did the move. Seemed to be doing that job well, but and we'll talk about it later whenever we get. Um, to his relationship with Jessica, but yeah. he seems like a fairly directionless man. He's just doing like the things in life that you're supposed to do. Mm-hmm. Get a good job, work decently at the job, have a living, good to go. Yeah. But there is a, um, let me see. Oh, here's the line that I was talking about. Whenever in the prologue, uh, whenever, do, did you have the prologue in the audiobook or in your version of the paperback that you had? Yeah. Where he's the... drinking at the pub with his friends? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I went to his gone away party like eight times. Dude. Okay. Yeah. That was fun. <laughs> the, um, the and I guess well I will obviously just get to that whenever we we get to that part. Um, there's not a whole lot that I want to say about the prologue because really all that happens is it just introduces him. He uh, talks about it talks about how he's leaving for London mm-hmm. and then he has that interaction with that old lady. Yeah, that's really just, just to give a little obvious, bit of foreshadowing yeah, is all that it is. Know. It's a uh, it's just you know it, the the prologue is literally just like a quick little introduction and. Uh, do you have that little prophecy a, from the a chance woman? to do some foreshadowing? Because um, that was just some pretty obvious foreshadowing. There wasn't much like hinting. It was just kind of straight up like yeah. Let's see. Be cur- yeah. Okay, so he's talking to the old lady. The old lady thinks that he's homeless because he's just like sat mm-hmm. on the you know sat in the gutter, um, in front of the pub, looking homeless. Yeah. Uh, they talk a little bit. He says I've got a job. That's why he's going to London. Blah blah. Mm-hmm. blah. And then she talks about how she was a dancer in London back in the day, or what? And then, uh, so hey, did that mean says, like a lady dancer, like a night? Uh, well, let's see. <laughs> if, we, if we assume that this story takes place in the '90s, which it gives us some hints later on that it does, then and she's an old lady. Let's say she's in her 80s. Then okay. she would have been if she went into London when she was young and got married, like she says. Then she was probably like in her mid-20s early 20s that she kind of ran away from home almost so yeah. if she's in her 80s it was 60 years ago it was in the 90s and it's like in the 30s that she went to london so she could have been i mean the, the only dancers that happened back then are like show dancers mm-hmm. you know like on a stage like mm-hmm. an actual performance or she may have been like in some sort of like gentleman's club or something yeah. like that yeah um i also don't know if there was any sort of um potential a doubt that there was because it's mm-hmm. england and england drinks a lot but if during any sort of time frame that she may or may not have been in london if there was any sort of like crackdown on drinking then she may have been like in an underground club or something like that as well yeah um these that, are ultimately all things that don't matter but <laughs> yeah um 
how did you like that it was in London? Like, was that weird for you? Like, do, uh, I guess the reason I bring it up is because I know, like, nothing about it. I've never been, literally, like, when I think London, I think of, like, the scenes in, like, the Harry Potter movies. Like, I mm. literally said earlier when we were looking at the map, like, oh, um, what was it? Uh, King's Cross, you know? I know where that is. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> right. So, and that's just, like, a block away from... Um, literally where like we spent most of the book yeah I've, I've also never been to london so i don't know have any personal experience with it um all i know about it is just stuff that i've taken from media mm-hmm. when i was younger i was a bit of an anglophile where i was extremely interested in different aspects of the uk and everything like that that was also whenever i was really into like medieval stuff so i read a lot about it and i would ingest any sort of um, story or anything that seemed related. Uh, so I guess I have a decent knowledge base that I can just reference where nothing is, you know, unusual to mm-hmm. me. Uh, but it's also a modern London. So it's just a big metropolitan city. Yeah, there weren't any cell phones. That was one thing I noticed. And I mean, he was writing back in the 90s, like when uh, Neil Gaiman was writing this book. He, you know, the, this book is the, evidently started in '91. I think I read. I meant to do more research on the the, the 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 backstory of writing this book and where that fits into his career, but I didn't give myself the time to. Well, you know, I actually read a little bit about that, and it's in this. The so I went on Audible and I got the uh, audiobook version of this, and um, the only one you can get is the author's preferred text. I think <laughs> so. Um, I also ordered the book, and. Uh, in the front of the book, like the physical book, it has an introduction to this text and talks about how uh, just like he started writing Neverwhere for BBC as a, as a show. Like he started writing it to be a show. <laughs> and then I think it was kind of like his silent revolt against the the editors because they kept editing out scenes that he thought were crucial. And, you know, it was just mm-hmm. they were taking their creative license with his uh, piece. And I don't think he liked the, the things that were getting cut. And I don't think he did it to get back at anyone either. I think he was just doing it because uh, he, he says, like, at one point in this part uh, that just whenever they'd cut something, he's like, we're cutting the scene from page 24. And uh, he would always go, no problem, I'll just put it back in the novel. And then so finally he's like, we're cutting this scene, and if you say I'll put it back in the novel, I'll kill you. <laughs> <laughs> so he just, I don't know, he seemed like he kind of just, he was very active in creating mm-hmm. it, and uh, he was creating it for a show. He was trying to create something magical, but he couldn't really portray that in the exact way he wanted. So he wrote the book, and he said, so he said he finished it crazy quick. Um, it said he started in January and he finished in May and that was like he was done with the book and as soon as he finished the book he's like I know I'm going to write another one because they're going to edit stuff out so he's like already Mm pre-planning this authored preferred text version after publishing the other one that we picked up at Half Price Books so anyway it's just it's very funny like he's he's just don't don't mess with his stuff (laughs) it's kind of like he, he likes it the way it is I guess that's everybody but well back to the old woman in the prologue oh yeah so she says hold out your hand and I'll tell you your fortune. He did as he was told. He, she put her old hands into his and held it tightly. And then she blinked a few times like an owl who had swallowed a mouse that was beginning to disagree with it. You've got a long way to go, she said, puzzled. London, Richard told her. Not just London, the old woman paused. Not any London I know. It started to rain then, softly. I'm sorry, she said. It starts with doors. Doors? She nodded. The rain fell harder. 
pattering on the roofs and on the asphalt of the road. I'd watch out for doors if I were you. Um, and so that's just the interaction with that. So it's just foreshadowing for, you know, yeah. everything that's going to happen. Or at least just like setting up a theme of doors, which is pretty evident. Mm-hmm. Uh, at some point, I would like to count how many times the word door is in this novel, because probably up in the thousands. Yeah, and I don't want to say too much. Never mind, let's go. Um, well, yeah, we'll, we'll get there in time. Yeah. Uh, a page at a time, like a book is read. Um, <laughs> so, after that, Leo Lily leaves. He um, goes back to the... Uh, he starts walking back towards the pub, because um, his friends realize that he's not inside... I guess to start off, he's they're at a pub because he's going to be leaving tomorrow to go to London yeah. for a job. He lives in Scotland. That's given here. Um, somewhere in there, they outright say that he's uh, in Scotland. Yeah, they, they were saying you can't get good scotch in London. Yeah, whenever he ends up getting back to the pub. Yeah. Um, well, there, and right before we get to that, there's a part where he's... Um, runs back after the old woman because it's starting to rain pretty heavily mm-hmm. and he gives her his umbrella um, she says you've got a good heart sometimes that's enough to see you say wherever you go but mostly it's not and, and this... that's just sort of like a bit more that's them that's so that's the author telling us this is a good guy mm-hmm. so it's you know just character building for him yeah especially so because we as we learn about him we learn he's you know he, he can't he doesn't have a great sense of direction so like his friends knew him and already like this that's what was the cool part about the umbrella is that they had a map of the london underground yeah it does seem like the, the underground umbrella. is going to be a big deal yeah um, I mean, because I mean, there's a map lost. of the underground in the first pages of the novel yeah he's um, for sure gonna get he's lost. got the the map of it he talks about it or he in his mind he's thinking about it in the first few pages of the first chapter about the underground and mm-hmm. uh, all that but um in any case so, yeah, he gets back to the pub, and then, um, like you were saying, they tell him, you won't be able to get real scotch in London. He says, I'm sure I will. They have everything in London. And uh, and then this was the part that I sort of related to, where he goes, um, and he downed the scotch, and uh, after that, someone brought him another, and then the evening blurred and broke up into fragments. Afterward, he remembered only the feeling that he was about to leave somewhere small and rational, a place that made sense for somewhere huge and old that didn't, which... Just sounded familiar to me because I did the same thing when I moved to Boston. Yeah. Um, we grew up in a relatively small town. It's not like the smallest town in Texas by any stretch. There is a difference between small town Texas and where we grew up for sure. For sure. But it was a smaller town. And even the city that we were next to uh, is, you know, not even, I think it might be in the top five size-wise cities in Texas, but it's there's nothing to do there. It's, you know, feels like a small city. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I moved to Boston, which, you know, was not the first city in America, but really old. And I didn't literally live in Boston, but the city I lived in, Woburn, just outside of Boston, was incorporated in 1607. Mm -hmm. So it was older than most uh, settlements uh, even across the country. It was older than anything that uh, um, um, what would later become Americans were doing in Texas, Mm -hmm. which was the only place I had lived in before that. So it was completely different. And so just that line was kind of like, Oh, I have too done that. Yeah. That's really cool. I, uh, I think your going away party was the only going away party I've ever been to. Has anybody else moved away? Probably not. Not I mean, like terribly serious. far. Yeah. Because far. like I mean, everybody went to college and then mm-hmm. all of y'all that went to college 
went directly to another city right after college. Mm-hmm. It's not like y'all then came back, spent a little bit of time there, and then moved off. That's true. Um, like, you know, you went to Houston. Yeah. A couple of people went to Austin or Dallas or whatever. Mm-hmm. But then even then, it's like, you know, Houston is three hours away from yeah. Portland. Austin is three and a half to four hours yeah. away from Portland. So, yeah, it, I also, now that I'm thinking about that, I don't think I remember anybody else having a going away party either. Yeah, yours was that, that one going away party that I remember. And then going to Boston, that was uh, just seeing the history, like in the buildings, that was neat, neat architecture, like even... Yeah, whenever y'all came up and visited in yeah, January. That was, that, I don't know, it didn't really hit me until I probably came back to like Texas. <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. I didn't, you know anywhere but um it was it was really interesting the seeing buildings that were older than anything else i had ever seen in my life right that was, that was, <laughs> was going, yeah exactly that that's just it's makes you i don't know it's crazy yeah it makes you step back but anyway i think that's everything in the prologue that really matters yeah that's that is literally just it um yeah then uh i guess we move into chapter one Hey, so now that we know that he's Scottish, did you read a Scottish accent? Oh, there was accent? something weird. I'm sorry. I'm going to take a quick step back, okay. uh, back into the prologue. It was just something that like jumped out at me that I was just like, what is this? Mm-hmm. Um, on page two, at least page two in my edition, it may be different in your, uh, uh, your literal book, when it's giving a description of Richard Mayhew, mm-hmm. there's a line that says, he had a rumpled, just woken up look to him, which oh, made shit. him look more attractive to the opposite sex than he would ever understand or believe, which I think is just completely neat. My note after that is just, what? Like, what is that? Who yeah, cares? that was that was a self-serving note. That, that yeah, it definitely looks kind of weird. Gaiman, which, is... if you look at the picture on the back of my book, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, he looks like he has a just woken up look. Uh, yeah, <laughs> he Neil? definitely just has like goofy wild hair. Who are you trying to be, Neil? Yeah, and I was like, come on, man. Like, yeah, it's a little. Um, what do they call that? Um, man, that's what they were um, accusing Ray of being a character. It's like a like a. Like a Betty Sue character is what they mm. call it, where you just put everything that you can that you want to be in like a cool oh, character so that you can feel like you're that character and be cool as the author, you know? Um, not that like this is literally that sort of situation because he does seem to be a bit of a bumbling idiot, uh, Richard mm-hmm. Mayhew. Yeah. Um, but just that one line, I was like, that was what the, is that? Yeah, that <laughs> it was like stupid. Whatever. Yeah. Um, it definitely seems like. Um, and one of the reasons that I wanted to look more into like the uh, the background of writing this book and whatever other works he may or may not have done beforehand, I was just like, this just seems like a sort of like first time thing, or at least what mm-hmm. I would think would be like a first time writer thing. It's like kind of weird, needless yeah. lines, you know, um, kind of you, not like like a well. And that's your yours is like the edited version, which isn't even really edited. I my chapter four ended at page 74 so like five pages tops and that you know i lose a page every chapter too because they blank out one of the sides you know mm-hmm. so i'm really reading the like same book mm-hmm. it would it'll be interesting to see what if we come across any little differences in the mm-hmm. two versions of it to see what it is that he thinks was important enough to be in there that yeah, might have just been sure. like um you know whatever Those on the <laughs> chopping floor yeah um Oh, but yeah, what I was saying a second yeah. ago. Um, so we know he's Scottish. Did you hear a Scottish accent in your head when you did his voice? So, the, um, so I can, whenever people are talking that have these accents, I know that they're different. Or and there's, depending on what it is, I may even be able to immediately tell, like, oh, you're Irish, you're Scottish, mm-hmm. you're English. But I definitely. 
whenever I'm if I'm doing a dumb impression or something like that, yeah. I can't make a difference in the impressions. Mm-hmm. It all just comes out to being like some just like garbage. <laughs> um, there's a I know the uh, like the place that I constantly reference as with the accent. Um, can't remember what it is, but it's just like oh, it's my favorite muffin. It is. I'm gonna get on the tubes and I'm gonna go down to London town. And but you know, it's just like the yeah. trashiest garbage, yeah, <laughs> like most stereotypical um, English well, accent, which is yeah. which someone has told me is just whatever i don't know where i got it from but it is a you know there are people that talk like that um in a specific area of mm-hmm. london and but that's just so underrepresentative of everything but that's the stereotype that i've done yeah. which is you know happens with everything everyone english uh decides that uh americans sound like john wayne so yeah um so for me i guess it's just something i do with my my head i don't even mean to but like since i had already heard Neil Gaiman's voices for the characters. Um, he had a Scottish, a slightly Scottish accent for uh, Richard Mayhew, and uh, you know he had a slightly different little accent for for different people. And um, hearing his voice beforehand, and then going in and reading the book, I basically was reading it in his voice. So I sort of read it with his accent, but he kind of taught it to me. I don't know if that happens to other people, but it happens to me a lot with different shows. Like if it's a show in another language, like. Uh, anime or like just anything in another language and they have the subtitles like I can listen I can match voices really well like I can pick different characters out from different shows and just so his voice I don't know it was just yeah I get you saying um it was definitely all uh narrated and then what the individual characters voices I definitely did put an English accent on everything um but not Scottish I, I don't know that it would have necessarily been scottish because i can't generate the difference myself yeah it's difficult for me to generate the difference in my head as well um or at least knowingly and then even like it's just like a it's not the, the voice that i hear in my head isn't that stupid geordie garbage that i was yeah. doing um it's just uh like a very generic english mm-hmm. accent or whatever yeah i've i've just sort of stolen his but it's funny stealing his accent and then going to read the book like i <laughs> I was talking to you earlier, and I was trying to ask, like, if you're going on a vacation anytime soon, and I thought, and you said, are, you are you going, going on, on holiday? holiday? Yeah. I do that, too. Whenever I'm going back through the Harry Potter series every several years or whatever, yeah. I'll, um, you know, after seven books, all of a sudden, like, you pick up all the, you know, idioms and stuff like that, and I'll catch myself thinking in that tone, and I'll be mm-hmm. like, what am I doing? I don't talk this way. Yeah. Um, so I definitely do that as well. I think one time I was reading through the Harry Potter books and I was watching some English show at the same time. I was like, oh my God, I'm just inundated yeah. with this. <clears throat> but anyways, on to chapter one. We start off with uh, a girl, an unnamed girl, who's uh, running away from somebody and talks about how she's super tired. It's and then she finds someplace safe. And so she sleeps, is what it says in mine. Okay. Yeah, it's very mysterious. Like, it's it's weird because in the chapter he breaks it up into different sections of a single chapter they jump between characters yeah and they jump between the characters and um, sometimes between time it seems like oh i didn't even think about that so for the first paragraph in line starts she had been running for four days now um and she's running 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 and then she finally finds a place described after four days of flight she had found a hiding place a tiny stone burrow under the world where she Mm. would be safe or so she prayed and at last she slept and then it jumps to the next set of characters that we find out about. Mr. Croup had hired Ross at the last floating market, which had been held in Westminster Abbey. So now we've got a new character, Mr. Croup. He's talking to somebody called Mr. Vandemar. 
think of him, he told Mr. Vandermar, as a canary. Um, and then they talk about this dude that they hired, Ross, who's just... They talk about him as a canary, just like just old sacrifice. mining canaries. Yeah, yeah. Um, Canaries they are taking into mines so that they can... And what would happen with canaries is that if there's a gas leak or something like that, the canary will die immediately because mm-hmm. it has such small lung capacity. And then they know, shit, we need to get out of here. Yeah. Um, so he's just going to be like a, you know, a signal and a sacrifice. They, uh, so they introduce something called the floating market, which appears to be some market that happens intermittently and at different locations. Because mm-hmm. uh, he says the last one where he hired Ross was held in Westminster Abbey. So even mentioning that it was in a location, we know that it jumps around and it was the last one so it also happens at different points in time it's not just like a single place like i'm gonna go to walmart or anything like that let's see they hire mr ross mr ross um they give him a quick description there's nothing really interesting about him Mm -hmm. but he does talk about how he uh likes to kill things and he's good at it which is what presumably he was hired for and then there's this the, the weird paragraph where they're describing mr cooper vandemar where they he gives all these things about like, oh, Mr. Vandermar is two and a half heads taller than Mr. Krupp. Second, or what it says is yeah. there are four simple ways for the observant to tell Mr. Krupp and Mr. Vandermar apart. He gives all this shit. And at the end, it says, also, they look nothing at yeah, all the alike. Fourth, the fourth <laughs> way was they don't look anything alike. It's like, okay. Which is, I mean, it's, it's very kind of like dry English humor. Mm-hmm. I thought it was funny. It was like, okay, I guess at this point, I'm having a hard time pinning down the tone of this book. Yeah. Um, but, you know, we'll see how it continues to go. I don't think that I necessarily was laughing or got the tone until my second playthrough. I wasn't mm-hmm. as uh, focused as I meant to be. And so um, one thing that it just... Okay, that, I think I remember what I was trying to say earlier. One thing that was hard to pinpoint is just I didn't, I didn't know what I necessarily needed to focus on so early on because mm-hmm. we don't really have any foundation. So right. I didn't really take too many notes in the beginning. Uh, one thing that did seem to really matter to me that I noticed on a uh, second and third time through was uh, his boring job was like Gary. Gary Gary's important, and I don't know why. He's really, dude. It just like yeah, the way, yeah. The way you he think was, he's gonna matter later on. Oh yeah, man. I for sure think he matters. I think because they they I'll talk about it in chapter three how I think Gary um, was just faking it, you okay. know. But uh. Yeah, I think he matters. Rereading it, I didn't like... Uh, reading it the first time, I didn't like Gary at all. I thought he was kind of a dick. He was just like Gary, you know? And then the second and third time, it's like, no, Gary has a very good understanding of what's going on around here. Like, it was just... He felt a bit more sage than they let on. And he seemed like he was kind of on the inside. Like, he's okay. one of these other people. Huh. Just kind of... But he maybe is... Uh, a, not, I don't want to say a spy, but you know he's living among us, you know, because he okay. definitely seemed like he had some weight to him, be... and I don't know why he just he he had a bunch of like he just had a bunch of moments in the book, uh, in the first chapter that it was just like, I think Gary matters, like he just okay yeah that's really interesting because I think all the characters, uh, all the normal people characters mm-hmm. are completely expendable and have are literally here. Uh, in fact, in my notes, uh, so. Uh, we'll get the just half a second. So they, um, it's just like a little bit of an in, uh, introduction to these three characters: Croup, Vandemar, and Ross. Mm-hmm. They kill a rat uh, that walks by. Um, they make a joke about it. Vandemar starts eating the rat. Mm-hmm. Um, so they're obviously weirdos. Mm-hmm. And then, uh, then it jumps 
three years in London had not changed Richard. We jump back to Richard. Mm -hmm. um, and then it just talks about how he's... So now we're ahead three years from the prologue. Mm -hmm. Richard has been in London there. Talks about how he's now... Uh, what he thinks of the city now. He talks about how it's not what he thought, but it's, it's just like another city. You know, it's, it's how I would imagine most of us imagine a city. It's busy. There's stuff. Uh, yeah. You know, it's a large city. It's always different, too, than you think it's going to be. And he seems mm -hmm. very like he's kind of turned into a fake version of himself. Like, as you sort of read on, it seems like he's just playing the role of <laughs> Richard to me. You know, it doesn't seem like he has any passion in what he's doing right now. He's just kind of like... Well, to this point, I don't think we really know anything about Richard. Just, um, I mean, he, yeah, I guess maybe I was just projecting on him. Because <laughs> <laughs> it feels like, at least to me, mm -hmm. and this could definitely be a difference in our editions of the books... Um, so then whenever you were saying that, and there appears to be some obvious difference where you think that Gary matters because Gary literally has like no point in my version, I didn't I feel think like. that either the first time through. And then the second time through, I was like, why is Gary getting these great one-liners? Like, why hmm. is Gary like... Okay. Yeah, I'll talk about it too when we go over okay, in chapter cool. three. Talks about his job. Um, talks about the history of London a little bit. Goes on about how... 2,000 years before, London had been a little Celtic village on the north side of the Thames, which the Romans had encountered and then settled in. And then it just talks about the growth of London, blah, blah, blah. So there's a lot of um, focus on the past of London, which is kind of interesting because then on the map of the London underground in this book, it has dates about when each crossing and each station was opened and what it was opened uh, as with its original name and different things like that. So there's some element of time that's playing that's important to be uh, enough to be described in uh, varying levels of detail yeah because we don't know what time it is like what time we're in but as of um, yeah it doesn't really tell us anything yeah um, except it, for it, the fact that there are cars the you know obviously the subways there the subway would have been there before cars but there's cars mm -hmm. we know so far and then my next note is uh Introduce Jessica, comma, plot device. <laughs> yeah. That seems to be her only purpose so far, is just something to uh, move him along and literally take him to where the story starts. I don't think that she has any purpose. She seems kind of half-baked as a character. This is some girl that Neil did, had a bad breakup with or something. that You know, like, he just... I don't know. I'm projecting there too, I feel probably, like but Jessica's... Like he just, she just... There's nothing likable about her, really. I think that she's fine. That's I don't it. think that there's anything negative or positive about yeah. her. Well, I think that there is literally more positive than negative. Where she's she's obviously an affluent girl. She has a successful job. Mm -hmm. She comes from affluent parents. Yeah. Um, she has goals in life. They mention in various points mm -hmm. uh, while we're still with her. Uh, through the next couple of chapters that she does that she donates to charity and things like that she's a perfectly yeah. pleasant person and good citizen mm -hmm. um and then she uh and it mentions it somewhere in here where um the she has she thinks that um let's see i think it's right here actually let's see okay so richard had richard had been awed by jessica who was beautiful and often quite funny mm -hmm. and was certainly going somewhere and Jessica saw in Richard an enormous amount of potential, which, properly harnessed by the right woman, would have made him the perfect matrimonial accessory. If only he were a little more focused, she would murmur to herself. <laughs> so she sees something in him that is worth, you know, yeah, I guess she is cultivating. Funny. So I think she's, you know, 
fine or whatever. Yeah, she was funny. I liked her. Now that you mention it, I liked her jokes. She's I have a note cool. here somewhere, and it might be a little bit later on during one of their interactions, but I, I remember taking down a note where Richard, more or less, is a man without direction, mm-hmm. and Jessica is giving him direction. Yeah. Which is something that he latches on to and loves there's one point where he's talking to gary where he says that you know she's still the light and love of my life blah blah blah. yeah gary i mean they're sort of they're laying down the foundation for us to get to know him as like if the book wasn't about him he would be the sidekick (laughs) you know like he's he needs to be led around like it seems like he's part of jessica's book and then even on the on the back of your book, it says when he meets this girl, some, his life goes and changes on a completely different path or whatever. Mm-hmm. So um, it just he seems like a force without direction and just they're basically just laying down that foundation and that groundwork for the, you know, the force without direction right. that he's going and then just wherever he is taken. So well, leading up to when Richard and the girl ultimately meet, he's at work. He's got a bunch going on. One of the things of which is that he's supposed to go to a dinner that night with Jessica and her boss. Mm-hmm. Ultimately, it's something that he's forgotten to make the reservation for. So he's running home to get home ahead of Jessica. The, uh, the excerpt here, Jessica calls him while he's at work. Richard said the speaker with Jessica's voice. It's Jessica. You haven't forgotten, have you? Forgotten. He tried to remember what he could have forgotten, so he's clearly forgotten about right. it. Right, <laughs> and even the way she asked it was like, she knows. remember this thing. It wasn't even, she wasn't even saying like, she wasn't asking, mm-hmm. she was telling him. <laughs> There's a point where uh, he calls her Jess, and then uh, she comes back, Jessica, Richard, not Jess. And She's uh, right he, about pet names or demeaning. Yeah, he says that he he's trying to figure out where to meet her. Uh, should we meet at the restaurant? She pauses and says, uh, after what happened the last time, I don't think so. You could get lost in your own backyard, Richard. Yeah. Um, and that's where my note comes up. Richard is a relatively directionless man, and Jessica gives him direction. Yeah, um, I can see that. After that, my next uh, note is we jump to door. Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's page 16. She's sleeping in some abandoned space, is wakened by a sense of danger in her dream, or just the noise of the door opening. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when Ross attacks her. Mm. Ends up stabbing her. She is able to roll away so that she doesn't get got in the chest, but it gets her in the arm. don't know why I didn't consider the stabbing to be very because important. Because this is when the hard magic comes. And then it goes, Until that moment, she had never thought she could do it. Never thought she would be brave enough or scared enough or desperate enough to dare. But she reached up one hand to his chest and she opened. So what we assume, what we can assume happens is she opened a door in his door. chest yeah. uh, because he dies on top of her. Um, she's killed Ross, the crony that was hired yeah. by Croup. The canary. And then after that, we jump to Richard again. Well, I think she also got wounded too, right? Did you yeah. say that? Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, she got stabbed. Okay. We jump back to Richard. He's uh, leaving the building. Okay, so jump, jump to Richard, finishing up work. Gary informs him how late it is. Richard rushes out of the office. He has to cancel his drinking plans with Gary because they were supposed to go drinks before... Uh, he went, but he ended up staying so late at work. Um, they get down to the main doors of the building, uh, and they're automatic doors. He tries to go out of the doors, but they're locked because it's too late. Mm-hmm. So he's got to talk with Mr. Figgis, the security guard. He's got to sign out with it. Once he uh, gets signed out, Mr. Figgis inspected their signatures and satisfied himself that they had no computers, potted palms, or carpets about their persons. Then he pressed a button under his desk, and the door slid open. 
doors, says Richard. Oh, gotcha. So he remembers the prophecy or the, you know, the fortune that he gets from the old lady. So he's, you know, presumably been going these three years, just like, you know, that's been in his mind is like doors, you know, whatever, mm-hmm. just like, even just like as a joke referencing to himself. And then in my notes, I have an all caps callback. Mm-hmm. Um, jump back to door. She's running from Mr. Coop and Mr. Vandemar. Nothing really happens. Jump to Richard. He's running home to be ready in time to meet Jessica. His apartment is generally messy. Jessica never wants to enter it. They're really selling some kind of convenient codependency between Jessica and Richard in this section, is what I wrote down. <clears throat> or typed down, rather. It seems like, and like we were talking about already uh, previously, they've got this relationship that's sort of like codependent, uh, but it's not like a nasty codependence. She sees something in him. She gives him purpose. So they seem to be good for each other. Yeah, it just kind of doesn't doesn't make you feel like, I guess, Richard is being fully harnessed, even though that's the point of Jessica. She's trying to harness him, but I guess it just... For a world that we assume has no magic until we get into the parts of Door, mm-hmm. it seems like that's about as best a life that he could have. Is to because they do seem like they're genuinely in love and they they have the best interests of each other in mind, but they really are. Or the it seems like the author here is really trying to push that idea on you that this is a more or less ideal relationship for what Richard could expect to have. Let's see. I got you. Sometimes I guess coming back and maybe rereading it, it felt like he had written it with a bit of hindsight 2020 like almost like he knew it was coming to an end because this was like the the preface to the whole point of his book you know like i think um he kind of knew that so i don't know why jessica didn't i guess that's why this didn't really stand out to me so much they just didn't seem to be very good together they just seemed like they were in lust you know like the only things that he was able to say about her were the generic things and then whenever she actually needed to stand up and defend like his honor or whatever or like uh or whenever they were gonna like he he was standing up for that girl you know she just doesn't back him it doesn't seem like it seems like she would expect him to back her well i think that she a... she believes that she knows what's best yeah because richard certainly doesn't he's yeah. never he doesn't assert himself in any way she's always made the decisions for him or, or more or less at least for what matters with their goals okay but I think that more than anything, maybe, at least in my opinion, what you're seeing uh, mm-hmm. where it seems just like a weak relationship is just because she doesn't matter as a character. I guess that's This true. is all a vehicle to get him to the catalyst. Probably. So there's, why would the author spend any time writing anything particularly good? I think that's the problem with this. Yeah. Or at least the problem that I have is that uh, Jessica, plot device. Mm-hmm. I think that everybody up until this point is just nothing mm-hmm. they're nobody characters jessica is just there as a vehicle to get him to the catalyst gary is just a side character adds some flavor to the fact that he was at work and mm-hmm. to give him somebody to talk to later on when he goes back to work which we'll get to yeah so i think that at least all this background stuff was just kind of not even not necessarily poorly written but poorly thought out there was nothing there's nothing given to any of these characters yeah it seems like maybe he has something in his mind figured out already that he hasn't necessarily explained all the way through like i think i've yeah. done that a couple of times like i have something in my mind and i, I think say he's definitely like then... you know all of the thought goes into whatever it is that's going to happen going forward mm-hmm. all the magic stuff the actual story yeah and then he's just like well i've got to start it somehow yeah so i'll start it with these characters and then they're gone it doesn't matter mm-hmm. at least that's the way that i feel 
So then, blah, blah, blah. Yeah, where are you on your notes? So, jump the door, still running. She's starting to slow down, though. Gotcha. Jump back to Richard. Jessica's in a hurry to get them to the dinner with her boss. They have a short disagreement over pausing to give change to a homeless man. Uh, Richard tosses him a pound discreetly as they walk away. <laughs> At some point, Jessica seems to realize how she's sounding towards Richard and implores Richard to know that she loves him. He does. Uh, jump back to door. She has run into a dead end. Mr. Coop and Mr. Vandemar are closing in. And then this is where we get to that excerpt that you had. Uh, this is the last door I opened. She prays silently to the temple, to the arch, somewhere, anywhere, safe. And then she thought wildly, somebody. And then as she passes out, she tried to open a door. I guess maybe that stood out to me because saying somebody opening a door, it, you know, that's definitely clearly... something that she seemingly hasn't done before because it's like a last desperate thing to yeah. Um, just to open a door to somebody so that's how she gets to Richard who we have now been inundated with the fact that he's like a thoughtlessly or self-thoughtlessly good person who's just doing stuff because he has this innate sense of good about him and that's really the only character trait that we know about him so far yeah he um, I don't even know if he has the good about him (laughs) he just seems to be like almost there he's now done twice things that he knows to be good. He's given the umbrella to the old woman in the prologue. Yeah, you're right. He wanted to stop to give money to the homeless man that him and Jessica were walking by, but Jessica was like, we got no time for you to stop and find money, but as they're walking away, he finds one and tosses it back. Yeah, he's got like a... He has an innate goodness about him. Mm-hmm. He's just sort of like a bumbling idiot that doesn't have any direction. Yeah. Um, and I guess this is the the direction and the guiding uh, that of Richard to the plot of the book. <laughs> yeah. The, what I think is seemingly going to happen is that this directionless man that has this innate sense of goodness about him uh, is going to be given a purpose and that's going to potentially be his character development. Is that yeah. now he's going to you know, grow into somebody with purpose and direction and something like that. Uh, you know, pretty classical character arc. I think, um, I think just knowing that this is like has some British humor style uh, to it. But no, I got it sort of like a Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy sort of vibe. How I even feel like that's probably why I thought Gary was important because I feel like there has to be somebody from the other side that they've given us a window to. We know that there's a girl on this like other side. I feel like I don't know. It's very Douglas Adams, very to have like very not super cool like main character with well, a bunch of cool people around. That's him. A, an extremely popular thing across most media the majority of video game characters are nobody characters that you can insert yourself into yeah um a lot of stories go that way i mean really if you think about it harry potter is kind of a nothing character for several books he's the underdog the only time that he starts being something that you can't immediately relate to because he's nobody is the order of the phoenix whenever he starts having his own like actual feelings about things and getting upset about shit Mm -hmm. Uh, which is because he's starting to go through like hard puberties at that age or whatever but still Like, up until that point, it's kind of just like, I'm the protagonist and I'm good, you know, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so that happens a lot, where you, the side characters are way more fleshed out than the main characters. Because mm-hmm. the main character, and it's, it's a strategy to make it a main character that you can just insert yourself into and therefore appreciate the story more. Yeah, that's probably then exactly what he was kind of trying to get to happen then. Just to have a very blanket guy that you can relate to, and then you become him, and you kind of play through this book. Mm-hmm. As Richard. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that there's definitely an element of that so far um, because we don't know anything about him except that he's innately good mm-hmm. and he's just kind of like a, uh, he's just like a, 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 like a wishy-washy, not even wishy-washy, that's not the right word, but he's just kind of like a whatever dude. But so then 
the girl opens the door. Um, we jump back to Richard. They're walking still. Uh, Jessica is prepping Richard for interacting with Mr. Stockton, her boss. Uh, she's prepping him like you would prep to meet the queen, you know, giving these different things. It's just um, super, almost demeaning, like like he can't handle meeting another grown-up. Like, because this grown-up is so far above his class, like his status. That, yeah, like, and I think she that's definitely Because there him. is a point where Gary says... Mr. Stockton, the Stockton of Stocktons. Yeah. Like, so he's obviously like a famous person that's a big deal. And then later on in another chapter, it talks about how he's all over the newspapers all the time, too. But then this Mr. Stockton guy is evidently very full of himself because the, the mm-hmm. way that she's saying to interact with him is like laugh when he makes a joke because it's her boss and she needs, like, even if she doesn't necessarily believe it, she needs to play this part to continue to have a successful career. Yeah, it's part of her job now. But all that aside, a door opens from a building ahead of them. Door falls out. Uh, by now we know her name is Door. The book has referenced her as Door. Richard stops to see if she is alright. Jessica wants to continue to the restaurant. Richard points out that Door is hurt. Jessica relents and says to call 999. Door says no hospitals. She's afraid Mr. Krupp and Mr. Vandemar will find her there. Richard picks her up and walks away. He just sort of does it. He doesn't know why he's necessarily doing it. Jessica declares that they will be over if he does this. He does it. He that walks- was... Yeah, that was weird for me, because up until this point, he'd never made, like... Well, I mean, the first decision he made was go to London. I think the idea is, like, the next big one. Yeah, like, a big decision. But I think that he's... He can't help but do something good. Because she opened the door to him. And and I get... Yeah, I don't know if that's some sort of, like... It it could be, like, a thing where it's, like, a self-fulfilling prophecy where because it happens, it has to happen. Mm -hmm. Or... The inverse of that, where the door opened up to Richard because he was going to do it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what it's been telling us over and over again, is that he's going to do the right thing, uh, whether or not he even thinks about it. Because he runs to give his umbrella to the old lady in the pouring rain. Mm -hmm. He um, can't stop from giving the change to the homeless person. And now he can't stop from helping this girl. And it's not even just like, I'm going to call the police or the hospital and they're going to come i'm going to do her request which is no hospitals that was why it was very it was like now is he doing good or is he just now it feels like he's being guided by some sort of i think that and it could be the self uh, fulfilling prophecy thing where you know it forces itself to happen but i Mm -hmm. think at least so far my interpretation is that he's so innately good he's always going to do what is the right decision whether he knows it or not so that's why the door opened up to him i guess he was like the beacon for the door rather than the door opening it up makes him the beacon in my opinion yeah i don't know why just i guess in my head it feels like the right decision was to probably you should have like well our conventional right decision yeah yeah. um but the right decision for this ultimately is for him to take her somewhere or whatever. To to help, yeah, to save her. And I think that that's probably, it ends up being the right decision just because she says, no, I don't want to go to the hospital. Mm -hmm. And for some unknown reason, he believes her. He's like, oh, okay. Um, That's off. (laughs) uh, But so then that's the the end of, well, um, so they ultimately uh, get to the apartment. He uh, leaves her in his bed. She convinces him not to call like a call doctor. To help with the wound. And then he goes and sits on the couch and falls asleep. So that's the end of chapter one. Yeah. Yeah, so chapter one is... Uh, we get introduced to a bunch of characters that I don't think are going to matter. <laughs> Maybe they do come back. 
I mean, they do literally come back here in the next couple of chapters, but once the uh, adventure starts, I don't think they're going to matter anymore. Maybe at the end of everything, he comes back to the normal society or something yeah, like that, and maybe. we see them just as like a reference, but I don't think they're going to be a part of anything mm-hmm. pivotal. Yeah. So then we start chapter two. Richard has a dream about fighting some huge boar. Is that mm-hmm. the same way that yours starts? Yes, exactly. Okay. It, I'm sure it has some sort of foreshadowing, but who knows what it is. Mm-hmm. He dies. <laughs> yeah, he gets gored by the boar, right? Yeah, he does. He uh, he misses with his spear throw. Um, or maybe he doesn't even miss. It just says, but it's already too late. He gets gored and he he's laying there bleeding. Assumably mm-hmm. he dies in the dream or whatever. He gets waked up by door. By girl. As the goal, because now it's from his perspective. I got you. But we as the reader know she's door because she's been referenced as door in okay. the previous chapter. So in my notes, I have her as Dor, sorry. No. Um, Dor wakes him. There's some scene setting about how he's at the apartment. You're awake, said Richard. Whose barony is this? Asked the girl. Whose fiefdom? Um, sorry? She looked around her suspiciously. Where am I? Newton Mansions, Little Comden Street. He stopped. She had opened the curtains, blinking at the cold daylight. The girl stared out at the rather ordinary view from Richard's window, astonished peering wide-eyed at the cars and buses and the tiny sprawl of shops, a bakery, a drugstore, and a liquor store below them. I'm in London above, she said in a small voice. So now we know that there's another world. Another world that is, for what we can assume, completely separate of it. Something, and maybe even something that she's never been to before because she's almost in awe that she's in London above. It doesn't seem like she's ever been here before. I don't know how she got to where she is, obviously, but... Yeah, but it doesn't even mean anything to Richard. He's like, London above. Like, I, I won't yeah. even register He's that He's still above so half. bewildered yeah. that he just doesn't know, you know. And, and barony. It's like, I don't even know if I could define barony. Is that like a, who runs this show? Who's the captain? Uh, a, a barony would be like, um, and then she like reiterates who's fiefdom. It's just like a... Was that the same thing? Like tracts of land. It's not like literally the same thing, I don't think. But if, for our purposes here, more or less. It's just like... So, like, a fiefdom is a section of land that you would get as a knight or a lord oh. uh, under a king of a country or what, you know. Okay. Um, so, there's some sort of ancient uh, society in the place that she comes from. Mm-hmm. Um, something that hasn't been observed, you know, like, just like a, a hierarchy that hasn't been observed in a really long time in the modern world. Yeah. One, one thing that I just literally realized, like, as you were saying it, you've been saying fiefdom, F I E F D O M. It sounds like thiefdom, like to me in the audiobook, just like like a city of thieves or something, oh. like a thiefdom. <laughs> I don't know. I've never heard fiefdom before, so that uh. or read it, so that word didn't come to me. I didn't know that one. Hmm. So only until I just read it right then, I guess I probably shouldn't know that word. But it's just I sounded like a different thing. So I never really. I was like, man, that would throw me off hearing. Like, whose barony is this? Who's like? I thought she said thiefdom. Like, like they're like she was mm-hmm. part of some thieving community. Oh. Like, you know, and a then, barony would be like the whatever area of land or whatever that is under control of a baron. Yeah. Um, okay, makes sense. So yeah, she's obviously her society observes this, you know, archaic hierarchy, which further plays into all the time stuff that they talk about where they give all this history of London in the beginning of the first chapter and then mm-hmm. with all the you know the, the notes and the map that's given at the beginning of the book 
my notes here say, by now we know there's magic in this world with her door opening, and now we definitively know there's some other world with an other society that door is from. Yeah, it was just kind of assumed before, because we were cutting from so many things and they sounded so different, you know, but mm-hmm. now we have definitive, like, there are two worlds... Yeah, and yeah. this one is different. They're to, they're, <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're starting to give us revelations that are you know definitive. Let's see. Then we jump ahead a bit. They go to clean and stitch up her arm wound, which is smaller than it was last night. So it did just need some time to heal. She's got some sort of healing property about her, and it's probably just could be like the magic of her world or whatever. Mm-hmm. The doorbell rings. Richard tells Dor to stay in the bathroom. He thinks it's Jessica. It's Mister Croup and Mister Vandemar. In his head, Richard likens them to a fox and a wolf, respectively. They are asking about Dor. They pretend to be her brothers, stating she is crazy and has gone running. They have a picture. It's her. Richard lies, says he's not seen her. Vandemar enters the apartment, sniffing around. <laughs> um, he ends up going to the bathroom where nobody is. At this point, Richard's like, hey, this is my apartment. You can't just go rooting around. Get out of here. There's a section where, um, or a, a small excerpt where uh, Vandemar suddenly like it's like he heard him for the first time when he starts yelling at him turns around and then Richard realizes he's never been more afraid of any man in his life and then that's when Mr. Croup jumps in and calms down Vandemar and say like, hey blah blah but you know trying to continue to keep up the axe because obviously Vandemar was about to snap and they leave so one thing that was a little different to me in the uh, the audio version was uh, they were interrogating um, him a little bit when they when they showed up Coop and Vandemar they were definitely asking a bunch of questions uh, Kroop, yeah and and, and it's funny because you hear the way um, Neil Gaiman or Gaiman uh, enunciates, and it, it really stood out like how he's written it. Uh, mm-hmm. For like, have you seen this girl? They're talking about these uh, photocopied signs of just these plain signs, and it's just like it takes up a huge part of the page. Have you seen this girl? Like, um, answers to the name of Doreen, bites and kicks, run away. Tell us if you saw her. Want her back. Rewards paid. It's just like bad grammar is just that so, seems to be like signs that yeah. are like old timey almost yeah exactly um, like the way that they depict like wanted signs mm-hmm. you know like in the old west or something like that just like exactly the information that you need doesn't yeah. have to be well, radically correct and as you say that too it's even formatted that way because like it's it's got it have you seen this girl which mm-hmm. would be where the wanted would be it's got a little paragraph explaining that it's got a photocopied gray photograph of you know door a uh, door you know right uh, and then uh, at the bottom, it's got you know her stats. It's exactly almost like, like they're trying to, they're trying to sell this image of them being modern men looking for right. somebody in their family. But because they're from some other society, they don't fully know how you know all the idiosyncrasies of this world. They're a little bit off because yeah. they've got this you know this poster that is you know uh, reminiscent of you know a long time ago. Mm-hmm. I don't. I think it's right around here too, where Richard notes what Croup and uh, Vandemar are wearing. He talks about how they had, how they seemed to have suits that have been tailored by, a by guy somebody who had seen. never seen a modern suit but had it described to exactly. him. Exactly, yeah. I thought that was a really cool way to describe like just what they were wearing. Because mm-hmm. I don't know, in my in my mind, I can paint like the perfect picture of what I think that would be. But if you try to describe, I don't know. Right. <laughs> There's yeah. It's just it was really cool. Um, so you definitely know that they're they're from an older time. I don't even know that they're necessarily from an older time. They're from a place outside of time. At okay. least in our reckoning. 
Yeah, that can, yeah, I can. Because they're from this other society that, and maybe at some point, societies split off Mm -hmm. in the same way that the Harry Potter universe, we're going to reference the Harry Potter a lot because that's like the only like English thing that we Mm -hmm. ever talked about, where they kind of diverge because they decided to go secret, you know? And so they're, they're, uh, the references of time are a little bit different where the wizards all dress kind of oldy and they, you know, things are a little more more old-fashioned aesthetic-wise in the wizarding world. Yeah. Um, whereas time has obviously progressed for the, the muggles. They didn't seem to care too much in Harry Potter. They just wore whatever. Right. But maybe in this book, that's not the case. Maybe it's not like a split and a divide. Maybe they have always been separate. We don't know yet. The way she says uh, ab- London above makes you think like there's a... They're definitely aware There's of the regular suit. world. It makes me think of like the sewer people in Futurama, like the old, right? New York, <laughs> yeah, old New York or whatever. Yeah, they're definitely aware of the other world. There was either a split at some point or a discovery mm-hmm. at some point. Ooh. Um, Hopefully, discovery. That would be more fun. So then. After they leave the apartment, there's a short scene outside the apartment. Good, I'm glad you're talking about that. Croup is thinking about whether he had cut the right cord on the Richard's phone. Um, and then this is where we get our first explicit time period estimate, the 20th century. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it talks about uh, 20th century telecommunic- telecommunications technology not being his strong point. And then uh, Mr. Croup turned to Mr. Vandemar. Do you believe him? They turned back down the stairs. Do I hell, Mr. Vandem- said Mr. Vandemar. I could smell her. So... Vandemar is the one he described as a wolf, too. Yes. So, um, he might be a wolf. There is an interesting allusion later on that I will mention. Yeah. Um, in reference to that. Yeah. Uh, jump back to Richard in the apartment. Phone rings. He tries to answer, but the cord to the receiver is cut. <laughs> so, Krupp did not cut the right cord. <laughs> or maybe he no, did. No, he did cut the right cord because well, he has would, to switch phones later. What we assume... I mean, what I would assume he meant to cut was the line so that he couldn't receive calls because if i'm going to cut someone's phone cable why am i just cutting the receiver cord but that's also just i don't know what his goals are no that's the smarter way to do it i didn't even consider that because you're right i kind of forgot how old like you either cut the phone line or you cut the receiver cable and that it sounded like he just cut the receiver cable and he didn't realize yeah because the the phone call comes through and gets to his machine Mm -hmm. um so but we don't know what croup's goal is there specifically Mm -hmm. so maybe he did mean to cut the receiver so he couldn't so the calls could still come through and potentially go out but he just couldn't actually use the phone or he meant to deaden calls like i would assume anybody who means to cut a cable is meaning to do that's Um, that was my uh, first assumption but as you talk about it more i think you might be onto something jessica leaves a message about breaking up Oh. That's really all it is. But, yeah, which she even says, I wish you were on the line so I could say it to your face. <laughs> it's like, yo, Jessica, that's still not to his face. That's I think still that, let me read the it right quick. She says, like, I wish you were on the line because it's the last conversation we're ever going to have, and I wish I could have it to your face. Answering machine on the table next to the phone. Her voice said, Richard, this is Jessica. I'm sorry you're not there because this would have been our last conversation. And I did so want to tell you this to your face. I think it's a separate thought. Mm. Where she's saying that she wants to have this conversation with him rather than just leaving a message. And on top of that, I don't even want to do this over the phone. I want to tell you this to your face. But does she? Because she just has the easy out. Like even, even I don't early... think that the easy out is her style. She's it a direct, like and, it, she's though, a direct even, and goal-driven style. I mean, even earlier, like when she's like whenever Richard leaves her on the street for this other like stabbed woman, you know, to help her. When he leaves her there, she thinks jokingly to herself like, what can I do to make my life like? What can I do to help my image? Because 
this is a big deal for like he was going to meet my fiance and now I'm going to say he's dead. How easy would it be to say he's dead? And she even... That was not in my book. Oh, really? Because no. she... Yeah, that happens in this In my one. book, she's, she says, if you don't come back here right now, this engagement is over, she's furious. And then she's crying. And that's the last we hear about her. Uh, okay, see, in mine, at the end, like, he leaves. And then Jessica's there for a little while. And then oh. she, she cusses really loudly by herself. She's like, shit. And she throws her... I think she actually did have a cell phone. Because I think she threw her phone in her purse and everything goes scattered. Maybe this uh, was added back in and he didn't catch that. But... Um, yeah, her things go scattered because she was pissed. She yells shit and throws it down. And uh, she thinks jokingly to herself, like, how could she come up with a way for this to be, like, acceptable? Could she joke that he died? Like, think, and how easy would it be for her to mm-hmm. say that he died? Because she straight up says that. And then, and then like, laughs I don't think that to she herself actually, about it. I think that's just, um, what, what do you call it? The way that you joke about something when what something tragic think? has happened to you. Um, that's just like... Uh, what's the word? You got a lot of faith in Jessica, Will. Well, because, at least in my edition, he puts a lot of effort into making sure you know that they believe that they love each other. Yeah, you're right. More than once he mentions it. So I think, and and because the way that everything else plays out with them, like we were had already talked about, they're nothing characters. I don't think that they, the only thing that we know about Jessica and Richard is that She's goal-driven. He's not necessarily, but he's not lazy, so to speak. But he can latch on to her giving him direction. And I think at least twice, they explicitly say that they know that they are in love with each other fully. That, to me, felt like one of those things, though, like, she had to say it because, like, when you're in love, you know you're in love. Like, you don't have to say it necessarily. It just felt like one of those things that they were... They but she never says to herself, telling, I love him. Right, that's what I'm saying. Like, she has she, to tell it to him to make it real. She, she reminds him because she, the one time that she reminds him saying it is because she realizes that she sounds a little bitchy right then. And I think that that happens a lot in any conversation where, like, yeah. you, you get, you know, involved in what you're saying and then you're like, okay, I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm doing this. You know that, actually. Like, yeah, you're, you're definitely. Um, but in any case, yeah, maybe maybe I have more faith in Jessica than I, don't know. I should okay. at this point. Apparently, but... I had a nasty line about her. <laughs> he told a nasty little lie. I think that's. I think that was her uh, coping. The maybe I. How easy would it be for me to just joke that he died or something? I think that's just like because obviously you don't then just go to a dinner and be like, "I'm sorry, Richard couldn't make it. He died." Like yeah, you know, died. <laughs> that makes absolutely no sense. That would never be viable by anybody. Um, so she's just making like a dry coping joke to herself because she's like what the fuck just happened you know mm-hmm. but in any case gets a breakup message Dora's making tea for them Richard's trying to ask her questions about things but Dora's not forthcoming Richard's still a little befuddled too because he yeah. doesn't know how she basically became invisible or hid in his bathroom that has no hiding spots you know yeah and 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 she's hiding from from smell like she's hiding from a, a dog you can't hide from those yeah really, there's definitely you know? like so a weird like, yeah because, well because they go into the bathroom she's not there well and, and he followed his nose so you know he's got something yeah but different richard has, different sense yeah that he's i mean there's using, definitely guess, something weird happening yeah. um but richard visually did not see her anywhere and then mm-hmm. whenever they leave they go to the door all of a sudden doors there making tea mm-hmm. so there's already something weird going on that even uh, just he can see doesn't make any sense because this describes his apartment as small and, and there can, wouldn't have been anywhere to hide I, I keep forgetting too. I know we've said doors a hundred times, but like she could have just maybe opened a door, gone somewhere else. Yeah, she. I think that's the assumption is that she Um, just went to like a door that took her someplace and then she came back. And think about your scent still being there when you were gone, because you leave Mm -hmm. a scent. Yeah, just you don't just 
carry it always with you. You know, you leave it behind. Right. <laughs> and uh, I didn't think about that. But Richard's asking questions. Door is not forthcoming. Uh, no, Richard. Honestly, you don't want to know. It wouldn't <laughs> do you any good. You've done more than you should have already. And this is something that continues to happen uh, with another character that we see later on. They Nobody is going to answer any of Richard's questions. They keep telling him, no, 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 no. You don't want to know anything. They're trying to figure out what to do next. Um, Richard's like, can we call anybody? Yeah, no, how we do can't we call anybody. talk to your friends and family, basically? Uh, Dora comes up with an idea. She, what Dora does is she lures a pigeon from the window. Uh, Richard holds it while Dora writes a letter to attach to it. He notices that he can't tell what color her eyes are. I don't know if that's going to matter or not. I just thought it mattered. Uh, describes them as fire opals. Dora attaches the letter with a rubber band Richard uses for his bills. Dora talks to the pigeon, tells it to look for the Marquis de Carabas. They wait. Yeah, and the pigeon cooed back at her and was like, Yeah, they're like talking. Yeah, they, Mm -hmm. they, and I think she even, yeah, she does. She even makes a weird pigeon sound at some point. Yeah, Yeah. (laughs) you're looking for Marquis de Carabas. And then Richard's like, You know, for a second, it sounded like you were talking to her, that it understood you. And then she goes, Yeah, imagine that. Like, she's pretty tongue in cheek. (laughs) Like, he doesn't know anything. She's very aware that he has no idea what magic is or anything like that. And she's just like, okay, well, I'm just going to roll with it. I don't want to tell him too much. During the conversations that they have while they're waiting, there's an allusion to Croup and Vandemar not being human. Right. Because uh, she, at, uh, Richard says, what about those two men? And she goes, men? Were they your, oh, I guess yeah. you could describe them as men. Two arms, two legs, heads. Yeah. Um, and they're kind of goofy. She's definitely kind of like a, an almost sort of like a, a little aloof. She's kind of like just kind of goofy and not regular. Which is, you know, something that people use for weird characters from other worlds all the time. Just make them seem kind of weird and goofy. And then that'll be enough uh, description to make you know that she's not from here. (laughs) Yeah. Jane Austen. Why do I know her? Is she the... Jane Austen wrote Pride and Prejudice. That's the one that people always reference anyways. And then other things. Uh, Wrote the book that she picks up and starts reading. I I wonder why he chose her. I was going to look it up and see if it has any significance. Maybe... I'll look it up later, and then I'll be on the lookout for when it comes up later on, if it does. Because mm-hmm. it could yeah. also just be his favorite Jane Austen book. Who knows? <laughs> yeah, he could just be into Jane Austen. He could have been reading Jane Austen at the time. You right. know, who knows what, what made him pick that? So then uh, a rat shows up. It has a message attached to it with the same rubber band that the pigeon was sent off with. It's a message from the Marquis de Carabas. Richard's not super cool with this rat, too, by the way. He yeah, freaks out. Him. Yeah, he, uh, he freaks out, and, and she freaks out back at him. It's like, uh, you better not have hurt my, my boy, my little rat. We jump ahead. Uh, Richard has gone to Oxford Street. Uh, I took an excerpt from here. You have to follow the directions written on here. Try not to let anyone follow you. Then she sighed and said, I really shouldn't involve you this much. Again, reiterating that something's happening because... Or something could happen because he's getting involved in the world. They don't want him to know too much. Mm-hmm. The instructions lead to Orm Passage. Orme Passage, however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. Which Richard doesn't remember. Uh, my note here says, it's some grim old place shit. Once you know about it, you can find it. Yeah, exactly. Um, Richard finds the Marquis. He's weird. Richard tells the Marquis that Dora wants him to transport her to the floating market. The Marquis asks about compensation. Richard mentions that Dora says she will owe him a really big favor. Marquis says, let's go. Yeah, he's really, he lights up at the really big favor part. And he's like, mm-hmm. really big favor? Are you sure she said it exactly like that? You know? And then he's like, yeah. I mean, she said she'd owe you one. And uh, I made it a big deal. And then immediately after, you kind of see why. Because he goes and he cashes in on a 20-year-old favor for this one favor. with. Yeah. So it either shows the significance of door or 
that she's got. It seems that the Marquis just works off of favors. Yeah. Or maybe even that society works off of favors. Right. Yeah. Um, so they go down to Manhole. Richard's trying to ask questions. Carabas stops him. They walk down the tunnel for a while. Eventually, they leave. They climb a ladder. Partway up the ladder, they hit daylight, and Richard looks down to find that he's a thousand feet above London. He freezes, but manages to continue and get up to the roof where Carabas is waiting. Uh, this is where they run into Old Bailey, some weird guy who's covered in ropes and feathers. Carabas talks to him. Now, you've owed me a favor for 20 years, Old Bailey, a big favor, and I'm calling it in. Carabas hands him a silver box. Do you know what this is? I wish I didn't. You'll keep it in safe for me. I don't want it. You don't have any choice. So, yeah, that's where we start talking about favors again with Carabas. So that's how he at least conducts business. Um, so in the in the preface to this book, we had that uh, about this um, about this book uh, section. Um, he has a little end thing, uh, like a little ending sentence that I bet. Dick Carapace knows uh, about some secret thing. I don't know. The last little paragraph I was like, I don't write sequels. Still, the world of Neverwhere is uh, is one that I hope one day I'll return to. In a book called The London Rivers of London, oh, The Lost Rivers of London, mm-hmm. uh, I read about a brass bed found one day in a sewer. To this day, nobody knows where it came from or how it got there. I bet Dick Carabas knows. Dick Carabas so, is definitely seems like he's just kind of like that character that's the the through line. Of a lot of stuff, and he's like the guide. He's the one who's got his hands and everything. Yeah, he's they like make him seem like a guy. Gandalf or like a yeah. Dumbledore, like a like the the. He comes along whenever the plot needs to move along. Exactly, he's that the vehicle. DM. He's that constant vehicle. Yeah, it seems that way. Anyways, he has all the trappings of those characters. Whenever you get introduced to them, you know. Mm-hmm. So then, uh, after he cashes in his favor with Old Bailey, they enter a tower and proceed down. Richard tries to ask about Old Bailey. Who was that man? Asked Chris. Heard. Yeah, what just happened? Peering through the dim light, their footsteps echoed and reverberated down the middle stairs. The Marquis de Carabas snorted. You haven't heard a word I've said, have you? You're in trouble already. Everything you do, everything you say, everything you hear just makes it worse. You had better pray you haven't stepped too far in. Um, and then I have a note. There's no, there, there is a reason neither Dora nor Carabas are giving any answers. They exit through a door that leads them into the broom closet of his apartment building. An old calendar from 1979 gives us another explicit estimate of the time period. Maybe this takes place in the late 80s, early 90s. Because they don't seem to, aside from what you're remembering from that excerpt about Jessica that I didn't have, it doesn't seem like anybody has cell phones. Uh, But this calendar from 1979 is described as an old calendar that's not going to be any use to anybody anymore. So it takes place sometime after that, late 80s, early 90s. They enter the apartment. Dor is there. Carabas goes to one knee and calls her my lady. Carabas and Dor talk about some couple of things that we've already known about, and then they get ready to leave. Um, clarifies. Clarifies the favor. The favor thing, and that's very particular. I don't know if words carry weight, um, like a binding weight, or that if seems it's just to like be just the way that he to your word. The way like that he just, says it, it just seems to be like the kind of like almost seedy way that he goes about business and talks he's like oh, okay. i've heard that the words favor big and really were used in the same sentence exactly okay. and so like it just seems genie. like he's just kind of like a seedy dude like yeah. uh, this is what i heard like the um, genie that'll give you the what you want but not like a 70 virgins but they're all like men <laughs> or like nerds you know right gotcha yeah um, so he's like the devil crossing richard talks you're leaving she nodded i'll be safe now more or less i hope for a little while where are you going now she smiled gently and shook her head. Uh-uh, I'm out of your life, and you've been wonderful. She went up on tiptoes then and kissed him on the cheek as friends kiss friends. 
If I ever need to get in touch with you, you don't ever. And and then she paused. Look, I'm sorry, okay? And then they disappeared. Dude, have you ever been kissed by a friend like that? Yeah. I've never been kissed goodbye by a friend like that. As friends kiss <laughs> It's a less friends. American thing, but it happens on occasion. Yeah, I mean, I've been kissed for it's like... It's a very European thing. Hello. I guess when I went to Cuba, I got a bunch of hello, goodbye kisses, but it uh, didn't feel... That felt like a like a smoochie. Maybe it was just a European thing. like the, the, It's very the European kiss. and it's very Latin. Okay. Mexicans do it all the time. Yeah. I can say that because I'm half that. Mexican. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean... Seems like it's a, maybe that's, they got that from Spain. Well, I think it's just, I mean, who knows when it started, but it's, I mean, it happens all across Europe like that, Hmm. to my knowledge. Cool. Mm -hmm. So we're on chapter three. Yeah. We just finished two. There's not, I didn't, I have less notes in chapter three than I have for chapter two. Everything interesting happens in chapter two. Mm -hmm. Chapter three is almost just exposition-y. Richard spends Sunday doing nothing. He tries to phone Jessica, but he doesn't reach her. There's a short monologue about her parents not approving of him, which leads to a short description about how his parents are dead. Uh, Jump ahead to Monday. Richard's alarm doesn't go off Monday. Excuse me. Richard's alarm doesn't go off Monday. He runs to the street where no cab will stop for him. He goes to the subway where his change will not buy him a ticket. And then whenever he gives up and jumps the turnstile, he can't get past all the other commuters that don't seem to notice him to get on the train. His jacket gets caught in the train as he's trying to force his way in, and he has to rip himself free. He ends up walking to work. Uh, he arrives at work, and everybody seems to ignore him. His desk is emptied. Nobody is acting like they know who he is. One thing about that that was interesting, it's not that they just were acting like they didn't know who he was. Like, they just didn't know he was there at all. Cause and like, it gets progressively worse as time goes on. Well... Because everybody, so anybody that he immediately addresses at work responds to him. Right, yeah. But just in passing, they're just like, oh, it's just a guy. Like, I don't Yeah, unless he, like, him. forces them to respond or act like even the cat. Because he talks to Sylvia. T- he's like, hey, Sylvia, what is going on? Right. And she's like, I'm sorry, who are you? Who are you? Yeah. Even even the cab driver, though, like, until he stood out in front of the second one, mm-hmm. it, it swerved the, out of the way. The first one, yeah. he just waved down. And then the second one, not, he just got super aggressive. I guess that's how he, he tried to, like, it, stand but, out. And, yeah. yeah, and then it just swerves around him. Yeah. So he's definitely like not noticeable, but he's not yet invisible. But yeah, it's something like I guess it, it almost feels like, yeah, like in the back of everyone's mind, they they kind of notice that he's there only if they force. He just blends they, in. He's yeah, just, he blends in. He's mm-hmm. more. Yeah, he's, he's not worth back. noticing. And those the people that do notice are the only ones, or that can barely pull anything back is like just people that he's got stronger ties. To. Yeah. He's more prominent in their minds. So he's like, it's like he's being pushed back to people, to the back of people's minds, like you said. Yeah. That um, was... So that so yeah, nobody knows. Talks to them about it. So you said he had something about here's Gary. My, here. Here's my Gary feature. So, so when we talk about Gary in this section, Richard goes and he like kind of catches him. He said, obviously writing to someone that wasn't his girlfriend. Like I think Richard, or I think uh, Gary's acting. I think he's faking. I think Gary is like part of this other world. And he's just, he's just, he's like the, uh... Well, they work at Ford. They work in securities, which, so they work, like, for, like, accounts and stuff like that for people. So I think it's an open office that clients can go to. Mm-hmm. And I think what happens as he's progressively becoming less and less memorable and nobody remembers who he is, I think when he goes and he sits down in front of Gary and he tries to get his attention, he's like, hey, talking to blah, blah, blah. Gary looks up and he's, and so then he puts on his client face. 
And he's like, oh, hi, I'm Gary something something. How can I help you? Like he's beginning a client interaction. Yeah. When I read it back, he doesn't say anything until until uh, Richard is like, Gary, what's going on? Is this a joke or something? Then Gary realizes. But it just, I liked that he wrote, he seemed to be writing something that was both, accept, uh, like, it seemed that he wrote that Gary was doing something He's doing obvious. something really weird. Uh, what, what does it say? He's, he's writing an email to somebody that is sexually explicit and addressed to someone who was not Gary's girlfriend. So it's just Gary going about his day at work. Where did I get the word obvious? I wrote down obvious. Maybe I just thought it was obvious. Yeah, so Gary's just going about his illicit activities at work. Yeah. Um, and doesn't notice that Richard's there because Richard is not noticeable. That was my one reason why I thought Gary was important. One of those. Hmm. I wonder what you were thinking at the time. But yeah, so I don't think that there's anything important about Gary. Because he doesn't do anything. I mean, he's he's the constant... At work, he's the only one. He's, he's like the, the only, one that has the time. He's the one. He's that, the like, only keeps... character that they've told us about at work, well, aside from Sylvia, who's just a, an assistant for somebody else. Right, has two lines. Gary's the only person that they talk about at work because they need to give him some well, connection at work. He's the only one Richard has. Yeah, it's his, it's his friend at work. It just oh, I think I think too when he's going to meet the Marquis de Carabas, like he even notes like oh that's that Indian joint that Gary likes, you know. Like, he notes something that's like, oh, that's Gary's favorite place. Like, that was right next to the door. I think Gary's his only friend. Oh, maybe that's it. <laughs> maybe that's why it's so important, because I could just feel the loneliness. But, yeah, I mean, I don't know. It just, it felt like he just put too much extra energy into Gary. It felt like that I wanted, maybe I just wanted him to be important. But I think I think he's going to come back up. Whether it's like you say at the end, he just comes back up as a, as like a back integrate back into regular mm -hmm. regular people life or if he's actually like I think or hope uh, he's like a spy <laughs> like he's from you know the other side yeah that would be my ideal but anyway that's the only the only little thing is just that Gary felt like very I don't know very likable very human he had a lot of it's his only friend and I think and Gary at least at the beginning um, when I first read through uh, he's also like, what is up with Jessica? Why is Jessica so controlling? Mm -hmm. And then, so I was like, yeah, why is Jessica so controlling? Yeah, and then what? the more I read about it, I was like, okay, I mean, this is, this is the relationship that works for them and they don't seem to be, there's nothing toxic about the relationship in my opinion. So then we jump ahead. Richard goes to Jessica's office. The receptionist ignores him. He sees Jessica down the hall and goes to her. He gushes about how everything has been crazy, how the morning has been crazy, how he's sorry about Friday night. And then I have a quote here. And Jessica nodded and continued to smile sympathetically. And then she said, You're going to think I'm absolutely awful, but I have a really dreadful memory for faces. Give me a second and I know I'll get it. So, just like not listening to him at all. Like just so... Because she doesn't know who he is. Right, so she's so, probably like, who is this guy and why is he telling me about still, all this stuff? Exactly. And she's being pleasant and like, okay, yeah, She's still yeah. trying to place a face and she gets close. She gets real close. Yeah. And he walked away out the door and down the corridor. He was almost at the lift when she called his name. Richard! He turned. It had been a joke. Some kind of petty revenge. Something he could explain. Richard Maybury? She seemed proud of herself for remembering that much. Mayhew, said Richard. And he got into the elevator, and the door sang a sad, fluting downward trill as they closed behind him. Yeah, so he's... That, so she's that was forgotten him, like, him, too. Yeah, that was him fully like this accepting, is, like, okay, this is real. Like, yeah. I have nothing now. Yeah, so then like, he returns to his apartment, and he is he's accepting that, or he's he knows that something's happening, that he's not 
the world. Everybody just, yeah, something the world's in his world is changing. Yeah, he doesn't like, get it. Machines reject him. People reject him. It's like he definitely hasn't accepted it um, because later on he outright says this isn't happening. <laughs> yeah, but he's understanding that something is going on. I think he says that when uh, people start trying to move into his apartment. Yeah. He returns to his apartment. He takes a bath. Someone enters the apartment to show it to a couple as if it's on the market. Yeah. They don't see him or hear him when he tries to talk to them. Uh, that's when he says, this can't be happening or this isn't happening. And then the phone rings. He's replaced it with like a bat phone that he got. For Christmas, um, yeah. And then he uh, uh, answers it and it's uh, it's Mr. Croup. Um, they have a short conversation way through it mr mayhew you don't mr mayhew you said door wasn't with you we have reason to believe that you were embroidering the truth more than perhaps a little well you said you were her brother all men are brothers mr mayhew i don't know that that's going to matter that just seems like such a specific line that sounds like some something kind of culty yeah all men are brothers or even potentially later on it'll be revealed that in, in at least in some context that we know about in a Christian sense, all men are brothers. Mm-hmm. Everybody stems from Adam and Eve, no matter yeah. how far you back you go, in, a, in you know the Christian belief. Right. So there's you know there's a, a precedent for this sort of like idea, but the fact that it was it, it just seems like a line that may or may not be important. We'll see. Even if it's just like a belief system that has to do with their faction, it might give into an understanding of whatever their faction is. Croup knows the door is no longer there, says that they're going to kill her anyways, says they're going to kill Richard. Richard phones the police. They can't hear him. Yeah, he still doesn't exist. He forgets that he doesn't exist because he has a conversation with somebody and he just turns back. Everything goes back to normal yeah. for a second. And then he's like, wait a minute. Right, like almost like, and maybe this is something I thought of on my second reading. Maybe like the he in that moment is like, well, maybe people can understand me on the phone maybe, or something oh, like yeah, that. Yeah. Because up until that point, that's the only time that he was able to get through to somebody. Mm-hmm. But then he calls... And he can't even be heard anymore. Well, previously, he was able to be heard, you know, by Gary, by Sylvia at the at office, least heard, by yeah. Jessica in person. Now, whenever the people are coming into the office, they don't even see him. Or, I'm sorry, the apartment at the office. Whenever they're being shown the apartment, he's, like, in the bath. They don't even see yeah, him. So, it's getting worse and worse and worse of time. Then he gets brought back. He's like, oh, man, somebody can hear me on the phone. But it's Mr. Croup, so whatever. And then... He tries to call the police, and again, they can't hear him. So mm-hmm. just kind of like, I guess maybe it's a reiteration of the fact that he's fading. Uh, and then it talks about how he like has accepted it, and then how he copes with it. So it says, with some deliberation, he took the black sports bag from under the bed and put socks into it, underpants, some t-shirts, his passport, his wallet. He was wearing jeans, jean sneakers, a thick sweatshirt. He remembered the way the girl who called herself Door had said goodbye. The way that she had paused, the way that he had said he was, or that sorry, the way that she had said that she was sorry. Yeah, you knew. He said to the empty apartment, "You knew this would happen." So he oh. realizes that that's why Door and the Marquis knew that this would be happening. That's why they kept telling him, "Don't ask questions. Don't find out anymore that you can't have to, because the more that you step in, the harder it's going to be mm-hmm. to get out of it." And so he obviously he's getting stuff ready to leave he's who knows what he thinks he's going to do but he's just like well i can't stay here if someone else is going to move in i don't mm-hmm. know what's happening i'm gone he goes to an atm to try to withdraw money the machine doesn't take his card uh, he walks by a homeless man asking for change he says well you can have my card there's 1500 pounds in there if you can get at it and they yeah have a short conversation about that uh, which richard then says you can see me nothing wrong with my eyes said the man <laughs> listen said richard have you ever heard of a place called the floating market I need to get there. There's a girl called Door. 
But the man had begun, nervously, to back away from Richard. Look, I really need help, said Richard. Please. This is the first guy that he, that is given instant feedback. They can see him after everything, so Richard knows, oh, maybe he knows about everything in this weird world. Yeah, maybe he knows about this new stuff. Otherwise he's going to start, you know, kissing mice and calling pigeons or something. Ultimately, the guy uh, says, come on, and they go through a door. Uh, the door leads them into a, a, a hall with high vaulted ceilings. There's a bunch of people in various places in the hall uh, eating and had their fires and stuff. A man scurries over to Richard's guide. Uh, Who have you brought us, Iliaster? Talk, talk, talk. He's from the upside, said the guide. Was asking about Lady Door and the floating market. Brought him to you, Lord Ratspeaker. Figured you'd know what to do with him. Uh, at this point, many people have surrounded them. Lord Ratspeaker pulls out a Lord Ratspeaker pulls out a sliver of glass and holds it to Richard's throat. Oh yes, yes, yes! I know exactly what to do with him. That's the end of the chapter. Yeah, that's the the cliff that we were hung on. Several things we know: there's magic. We know it's another society. He no longer belongs in the regular society, and. From here on out, he's going into the other society, and this is where the adventure begins. Yeah, we don't know if necessarily he's in trouble either, because like if it was Harry Potter, he'd be in trouble, and they'd be removing his mind. It seems like they can't make him forget. Yeah, I don't think it's like a, an artificial mind control thing. It's a knowledge of the other world that takes you out that? of the real world or the our world. Yeah, and we don't know what's going to happen with this rat lord, the Lord Rat Speaker dude. It seems like such a classic misdirection. Where he holds, you know, effectively a knife to his throat and is like, oh, I know what to do with him. Yeah. And then one of two things is going to happen. It's going to be like, and then he steps back and they all laugh at him yeah. and he like awkwardly laughs with them. Or uh, maybe the Marquis shows up and he's like, hey, he's with me, you know, rescues him or whatever. Yeah. We don't know this Lord Ratspeaker's affiliation, um, but this is a classic like cliffhanger that's going to be a setup for one of those two archetypal sort of things to happen. Yeah. Right before he meets Lord Ratspeaker, he talks about um, how like going down into this like under underworld, like it felt like hell to him. Like it was his mm-hmm. mental picture of what hell was like as a kid and uh, mm-hmm. I thought that was kind of neat and then when he was down there he was it was like uh, it was like this smoke from them probably burning these like little rats that they were cooking and eating and these people look like they're part rat you know because they're right. it even talks about how they move around kind of everybody seems to have some sort of like animalistic feature to them Old Bailey was kind of like a bird he lived on a rooftop yeah I didn't even think um, about Old Bailey the uh, croup and Vandemar um, are described as fox and a wolf even the way that they like sort of talk where uh, Krub has like a very sleazy and slimy way of talking it's described a couple of times mm-hmm. uh, Vandemar is just completely flat and then the, uh, the, the only person so far that doesn't have any sort of um, analytic characteristic was Dor yeah and I guess Richard himself unless you want to think of him as like the good old boy like the, you're the good dog <laughs> but he doesn't sniff or anything like i don't think richard has any they haven't given him anything, anything but he's from the regular world yeah he's just in- everybody from the other world has so far has been given some level of uh animalistic characteristic or at least the ones that seem to spend all their time there because yeah. a homeless man that takes them there isn't described as having anything he's just a homeless man yeah um but then they get there and there's people that are doing everything there they're all like rat ish and then the lord rat speaker comes on like you know he's yeah very obviously like rat e mm-hmm. so there's some sort of and then the the, the one time uh, when Dora's like i guess you could call them men so the people on the other side 
may or may not be fully human or whatever it is. We'll, yeah. You know, that will be further revealed later on, I'm sure. Um, yeah, that'll be fun to learn sort of what each person, and maybe we do know about Dor. Maybe we do know, like, what kind of anim- animal, like, she relates to, or maybe that They may give us matter, more stuff you know? later on to know. But she is also seemingly some level of royalty. That's the word I was going to use, royalty. So not necessarily the... just class. It seems like... St- well, I guess stat- status goes with class, but mm-hmm. um, well, they talk about her as Lady Door. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the Marquis kneels to her, uh, and she's being so the, they seem to be like some sort of overthrown royal family. That's why she uh, needed to everybody know in her family was, was killed, mm-hmm. and so now Croup and Vandemar, the, uh, that are a part of the faction that overthrew the royalty, are looking for her to finish off the you know the last of the line, so that their faction can you know uh, consolidate their power fully take over um so yeah, that I'll, seems to be the where we're headed it's cool there's a lot of potential like like we were talking about earlier it's, it was it was cool for me to go back and redo it so much i think this next time we go through i'll try and take a few more phone notes maybe even take some screenshots of some timestamps and different things that stood out to me a little more because i did need to reread a bunch i think three chapters was pretty good so We'll just be reading chapters four and five this week. Yeah, you get up to chapter six. So stop when you hear Richard wrote a diary. (laughs) (laughs) But anyway, I guess we'll close it out. Uh, You can find us at our Twitter, um, at ears underscore stamps. Yes. And um, we're coming out every Wednesday. Yeah, we publish the episodes on Wednesdays. Everything um, so far is still only on SoundCloud and iTunes. We're waiting on the approval to come back from Google Play podcasts, uh, but evidently that can take as long as 10 days for that approval process to happen. Yeah. Um, it's now been six days, so yeah. we'll see. I'll uh, be posting about it on our Twitter account whenever it does go live on Google Play as well. Um, but we're on SoundCloud at Dog, St- Dog Ears and Time Stance. Use the ampersand, not the word and. Yeah. Um, and then same on iTunes. Yeah. I guess that's it for the week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Let us know what you think, if you have any thoughts about how we're doing it. Um, I'm sure this will continue to evolve and change in different ways as we get more comfortable and find a uh, pace that goes well. Leave us reviews on iTunes. Oh, yeah, please leave a review. Contact us on Twitter if you want. Do that. Yeah, we want this to be an active community. I want you guys to feel, like, involved because... We need you to be. I mean, we're in a book club. We're in a club together, you know? And let us know what you're thinking about the chapters that we're reading as well, because it'll be interesting to hear what other people think, aside from just us. Oh, yeah. That's the best part about it. So, All right. Well, uh, we'll uh, talk to you next Wednesday, or I guess you'll hear from us next Wednesday. I'm Will Hedrick. And I'm Jordan Chaffer. And this is Dog Ears and Timestamps. See you next week.